Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, and we are going to be speaking about Industry 4.0, the Internet of Things, uh, robotic software, you know, what's holding back the development of Industry 4.0 uh, and all of this automation. Uh, it certainly is exciting, but it tends to be evolutionary more than revolutionary, I think, Lou. Yeah, uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, how all of this uh, plays into our present uh, uh, pandemic issue, uh, which uh, I think uh, is a worthwhile topic in terms of what is uh, uh, robotics, either software or hardware, how it plays into the the pandemic that we're having in regards to safety to employees uh, and so on. So that being said, let me introduce uh, A.K. Schultz, who's CEO of SVT Robotics. He's also a co-founder of that company, and they focus on robotic software and automation. A.K., thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. One of the big questions out there that we've been watching, Lou and I have been watching for some period of time, you know, we, we all expect if it's good, it should be revolutionary and happen really quick. And Industry 4.0 hasn't actually happened that way. What's holding it up? Yeah, I mean, Industry 4.0, if you think about it, really set out to create what they call the smart factory, right? And to do that, you need several components. One is you need to instrument and have access to all the sensor technology that are inside your factory or warehouse. The other thing you need is a, a very powerful computational system like, say, the cloud. that gives you access to the large computing power and the ability to connect all these things together. And frankly, we kind of have all that, right? Um, so why hasn't it taken off? Well, if you think about what has really been the big blocker, it's not, it's really the IT um, infrastructure problem on the software side. Um, companies, every single time someone wants to interface something new, there's some level of integration effort has to be done by software engineers and it has to be done over and over again. And don't get me wrong, there have been companies that have been out there that have managed to create smart factories. There's some amazingly run plants and warehouses out there. However, the moment you try to do it again, most of that integration code has to be rewritten. So what this causes is a scalability problem. And every single time you write it, and it's all custom or bespoke, um, it has to be maintained. And this creates an enormous amount of infrastructure needs. And in the industry, we call it technical debt. Every time you write something that is only good for one use, it creates a, a debt that the, the companies have to service for support of that existing technology. And eventually that technical debt becomes so big, you spend more time servicing the technical debt than you do innovating on new things. Well, you know, <laughs> I would agree with you. I know that 
Um, Lou's company, All Mellows and Forge Group, without naming names, has gone through some technology implementations, some of it homebrew, some of it with software as a service. It's not easy. Well, not only that, but when you have a person like me uh, who knows little or nothing about uh, uh, software and so on, that when I'm being told, well, it could do this, it could do that, and I said, well, if it can do that, can it do this? And then, yes, it could do this. Well, if it can do this, that, can it do the other? And it just piles on and piles on. It gets more complex. And uh, to your point, you just have to keep writing it, changing it, and keeping up with it. So I'm sure you run into that all the time. Yeah, and as you as you build these things, they get more and more complex, and the data the data behind it becomes more and more complex and intertwined. Um, I call this the Jenga Tower of Code, right? It just gets <laughs> so big and brittle. Yeah, it, it's so big and brittle, and, and, you know, it gets to the point where you make a change, and you're holding your breath, and everyone's, you're kind of like, don't touch the table. Uh, don't breathe, right? And Because uh, you don't want it to fall over. <laughs> Oh, that's we'll almost too that painfully right now, true. <laughs> <laughs> so, AK, what's the solution? Uh, you know, the Internet of Things sounded great when it came along, and everybody thought, ooh, this will help revolutionize. They talked about big data, but, you know, what's the solution? We know the problems. Yeah, I mean, so wherever these big problems have been solved, it comes down to adopting a convention. And I'll give one that I think everyone can relate to, and it's something that we've really committed our company to solving here at SVT Robotics. Um, think about USB, right? There was once a day, for those of you who are old enough, and I'm going to kind of date myself a bit, when if you bought a printer, they gave you a three-and-a-half-inch floppy, and you would install the driver, and you had a serial cable, so on and so forth, and the next time you bought a computer, it could be that, that that device driver that you installed via floppy is no longer relevant. Also, God help you if you, uh, if you lose the floppy, because that <laughs> essentially, essentially renders the printer useless, right? So it just becomes a hunk of plastic. And along comes this concept called USB. And USB is, stands for Universal Serial Bus. And it said, okay, we're all, we all want to make printers. We all want to make um, peripherals, mouse, uh, disk drives, so on and so forth. Um, we need to agree on one way of communicating and interfacing with a computer. And we also want to use this technology called the Internet to reach out and be able to download stuff. And suddenly, because of the advent of this industry-wide uh, agreement, Suddenly, you were able to do that to the point now where, you know, my mother, who's probably the least technically savvy person on the planet, can actually plug in a printer and it works without any heavy lifting. And this is absolutely necessary. If you, if you look at other places where this has, has succeeded, um, and, and specifically the IoT, uh, what you see is an, I, an IoT success, is in the consumer side of the market. And I want to use Android as the, the benchmark here, right? So what you have in Android is essentially an 
open platform. And this platform, um, I mean, any one of us listening to the call right now could go to and, and download the software to write apps in Android. And what they've done is they've standardized the way uh, the software connects to your phone. And so what that suddenly enables is a company like Waze to, to do something that, that before GPSs couldn't do. And, and this is, uh, I know this is an odd example compared to industrial, but um, if you think about the old way GPSs we used to work, um, a GPS, you would download the maps, and it was only good while you had the download. And by the way, it would, would receive one-way communication from satellites, and it'd tell you where to go. And over time, in order to be updated, you had to continuously download stuff. But it was also just a one-way analysis. It didn't account for all the other things that are happening on the road around you. And so this company Way says, well, what if I were to also use the wireless signal a, to make the information more accurate, but also to transmit back, not just one-way communication, but two-way communication about what's happening. And then you can interpret through other things that are happening if there's traffic or an accident, so on and so forth. And suddenly that becomes much more information rich. And then they can start rerouting you before you get into the, into the traffic, right? And all this is based on the fact that um, every single phone, although different, they've created the standard that says, I don't care if you're on an Android platform, I don't care whose phone it is, this will work, right? And of course, this is also done for Apple. But I think if you look at Android, it's a lot more open, right? It enables not just one company to do this, but a myriad of companies. And so if you look at the companies that, there's other companies who tried to build their own proprietary standards, so Samsung is one of them. And eventually they adopted Android because it just made it easier for everything to work with each other, and they were able to, to essentially focus on building a great phone rather than trying to create a new operating system and reinvent what was already pretty amazing. So are there going to be standards, or are there standards in manufacturing where – and, and you're right. I, if I go out and I buy a device that is supposed to work with my phone or my computer, my expectation these days is I plug it in, I turn it on, and it works, and it interfaces, and I don't have to fool with it. Uh, are those kind of standards evolving in Industry 4.0? So, uh, kind of, right? So, first of all, there are some accepted <laughs> standards out there. Um, and a lot of these standards are at a very, very low level. And this is because the roots of robotics is in manufacturing. And so very uh, machine-level uh, communication standards. However, as we start to do more interesting things, rather than just having a, a welding robot just weld the same door over and over again, if you want the robot to do multiple tasks, say it's, uh, well, it's going to actually perform a weld on like seven different types of um, car uh, um, variants, right? So model numbers and, and, um, and series. It can actually switch, but it has to communicate not just with sensors. It has to actually communicate with enterprise systems. In enterprise systems, their communication mode is in business, not 
motors and interpret, interpreting, say, a light sensor. And so these things talk very, very different languages. And this is where I find the breakdown to be, is not in the machine-to-machine -machine communication. It's the machine-to-business system. And the way we have solved this has been to write code every single time. And, uh, and, and that's where this technical debt gets built up. Now, um, really nobody, as far as I can tell, has gone out to try to build this. And this is why we decided to. Because we were, you know, so I've been in, in robotics and automation for, I don't know, 16, coming up on 17 years. And I've been an evangelist for doing, you know, for putting robotics in facilities for, for a long time. And it's gotten to the point where um, you really don't have to convince people that this is a good idea. The bigger problem is there's, it's more of a bottleneck. There's less capacity to, to deploy it than there is. Um, there's, there's less capacity than there is uh, demand. Right, and that capacity problem is in the software side. So, just a, a little story illustrating that. Um, my co-founder and I worked on one of the largest automotive uh, manufacturing line I've ever seen. Being, you know, it was well north of a half a billion, and my estimates are that it was actually closer to a billion dollars worth of robotics going in all at one time, and it was an insanely fast. Um, uh, deployment for uh, an electric car plant out west. And it forced a whole bunch of companies who were competitors to have to work with each other on a very short timeline. And when we got to the point of being ready to turn it on, we had a lot of integration problems because quite literally all the different protocols are designed talk to, not, to not talk to each other which makes it that much uh, more difficult to interface. And this was the epiphany that we had. We said, wow, this is such a big problem that, you know, you know we always kind of knew this to be a problem, but we, we didn't really see it until we were right there and see, saw such, a, such a, an intense magnified um, a, a scenario that we said, okay, yeah, this is the problem that is blocking the whole industry. This is what we need to go fix. So we went out and, and spent the past two years building that standard, and we're really excited about the results. And, and that's what your, your software does now. It yes. Integrates, integrates communication between different uh, platforms for lots yeah, of better work. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. If you think about oh, – I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's all right. Go ahead. Yeah, so if you think about what um, we used to do is we, we tended to buy these suites of products and because they, were, they all communicated with each other. And this we did not only in the industry, but we also did it in our personal lives, say so with Microsoft products. But over time, we found out that we liked pieces of one thing but not pieces of another. And nowadays... You know, mo le le uh, very few people use the entire set of products from a particular company. They actually can use them all from different companies, and the communication is super easy. But we have not done that in the industrial world. And so what we said is, wow, anything should be able to talk to anything, and there's nothing really stopping it. 
except for someone to go out and build this common framework and language. And so just to give a very simple example, um, a mobile robot or a automatic guided vehicle is, is a vehicle that's designed to move something around a plant. And the telemetry of this robot is actually pretty simple. Tell me where to go, tell me where to take it, and tell me what it is. And I don't really care whose robot it is that is doing this. Um, that, in fact, you can swap that robot out, but, and I wouldn't you know, hardly be able to tell if I make the connection to that seamless and transparent. And so if you think about it also, a human forklift, a humanly driven forklift is also the same. So it doesn't actually matter if you write the software correctly. So you should be able to have multiple different robot types all communicating on the same platform without any custom code. And that's the key. So going back to the cell phone world, if you, let's say, how many apps do you think are using, say, the GPS on your phone right now? Five, six, seven, ten? They're all kind of like Yelp. It's a, uh, a restaurant review thing, right? Um, uses your, uses your uh, GPS. So if you were to deinstall Yelp, does it break Google Maps? No, it doesn't. It's because everything is abstracted from each other and disconnected because they all subscribe to that, that GPS data, but they don't, it's not highly coupled. It's not this Jenga tower of code. And this is, a, this is technologically possible, but we, because of our industry and the bias for companies to create proprietary tech, um, we've created a situation where if you deinstall something or install something, it breaks other things. And that is essentially on purpose to keep companies um, bound to proprietary tech. And we want to break these, break these uh, bounds and allow companies to be very flexible in their adoption of automation. So your, your software gives the ability to have – two, five, ten, twenty different programs, even though they're all different, to be able to communicate with one another, which, if that's the case, it solves a huge problem. Absolutely. And not only that, so it's not only easy to connect, right? So it's not only easy to, to, to build these connections. If you're adopting something that is already on the platform, then the communication is, is instantaneous. And then you can get to work on, you can, instead of uh, focusing your energy on getting things to talk to each other, you can focus your energy on um, getting to work for your business and focus on running your business. Uh, to just uh, switch uh, horses here for a couple of minutes, uh, how is, how is uh, your uh, robotic, software integration and so on affected by COVID and uh, the employees that are using the equipment and the software. Uh, COVID, of course, is a, a huge problem today, not only in uh, uh, retail and B2C, but certainly in B2B. How, how is uh, your product affecting that? So, we're actually 
we believe that we're extremely helpful to companies who want to adopt robotics because just getting people into your plant and introducing uh, and deploying robots means that you're bringing people into the facility, and that's adds to the risk. So it's increasingly right. difficult to do that. And our system is designed to um, deploy remotely. And because all these connections are pre-tested, there's very little need for on-site efforts. Um, the, uh, the other thing that we see – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just commenting on the uh, the remote aspect. Is, uh, uh, that's really uh, phenomenal. And if there's any uh, uh, maintenance or upgrading and all of that can be done uh, remotely as well? Yes. So that's also the benefit of all these uh, these app, these microservices or apps. Um, because they're decoupled from each other, you can actually do a, an upgrade and it doesn't impact anything else, just like on your phone, right? If you upgrade one app, it doesn't break 10 other apps. This right, is the right. beauty of having modular structures. Yeah, it, it only breaks uh, things when the company that makes the phone updates their operating system. <laughs> <laughs> their programmers didn't find the bugs before the bugs got out the door. Um, AK, it's, you make an interesting uh, note here that I wanted to double back to, and that is why companies should think more like venture capitalists when they're implementing robotics. Why is that? So if you think about what venture capitalists do, they place bets, small bets on lots of businesses, knowing that, that everything's not going to work out. But they do know that they focus on the ones that will succeed rather than the ones that fail. And this is why companies like Google come out, right? And because there was a hundred other companies that they bet on that didn't work. But they're, the way the VCs do it is they make lots of small bets, and as things are succeeding, they put more money in. And a lot of companies, because of risk aversion, will take a lot of time, do a lot of analysis, and place one big bet. And the problem is that there's a good chance that you didn't think of everything. In fact, it's impossible to think about everything. So by, paying, by placing a lot of small bets, you can actually figure out what technologies are actually really good for your business. And um, if, if you think about uh, how, yeah, so if you think about how you would do this, this is done through pilot programs. But the challenge right now in the market is that because of all these proprietary interfaces and all this, these integration points, it costs almost as much to write the software for one robot as it does 100. And so by having the ability to rapidly integrate, it unlocks the ability for a company to test 10 robot types really rapidly, decide what works, and then double down on the ones that do work. Well, that's interesting because I sense the ability here for manufacturers using your platform, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's called SoftBot, um, to do exactly what you said. Uh, the uh, challenge that they get stuck in, and I think why they're so slow to make a decision, and rightfully so, is that whatever uh, component they're going to integrate into their plant, they're going to be married to for a long time. It's not like I can get an HP printer 
And, oh, you know, I really don't like it. I'm, I want to get an Epson. And I jerk out the HP and I put in an Epson and, and I'm fine. I don't lose anything. Um, this is more like the very, very, very early days in IoT right now with Industry 4.0 where I'm making the commitment to an, uh, an HP printer from the next decade. And, and I have a lot of options. I'm essentially held hostage. And soft spot is solving that? Yeah, I mean, so there's this concept called robots as a service now. And there's companies that are out there saying, hey, rather than you know, paying a million bucks for our robots, why don't you just lease them from us as you need them? Um, whether that's on a monthly basis or on a per unit picked or, or door welded basis. And there will come a point where a better technology comes along. And you're going to want to be able to swap and upgrade that. And robots as a service makes that much more possible because you do not have the capital problems, right? So you're making a good decision based on the technology rather than the fact that this asset's on your balance sheet. Um, now, of course, this means that companies who are in the robots as a service business have to be, they have to, to defend their competitive position, but they do it by continuously innovating rather than holding companies hostage, right? It encourages companies to continue to innovate rather than I'll drop it in there, build a garden, walled garden, and they'll never be able to extract me. I think this creates more of a, uh, a meritocracy inside our industrial environments. And I think it's been needed. Like the dirty little secret of robotics is that it's the highest tech industry with some of the most archaic technical stacks. And it's because of these walls that we put up. Yeah, no doubt. That clearly is the case with so much of this. And I, I know Lou and I recently did a show on machines as a service. So if I'm a manufacturer and I have, and as a manufacturer, I look forward in my order books six to nine months and I see a peak demand for my three CNC machines and I really need eight. I can go out and lease five CNC machines, have them brought in, fulfill the order, and then the five go back. They're not on my balance sheet. I'm not now in a position where I have to go, oh, God, i, I got to feed eight CNCs instead of the three I used to feed. So I, I think you're in an interesting position in terms of this, and I hope we're helping get the word out to listeners about SoftBot. And in that respect, can you give us your website address, AK? Yeah, it's uh, svtrobotics.com. And there's tons of information there and demos that you can see uh, how things are built and how they're connected. And, uh, yeah, would love to uh, love to answer any questions if anyone has it. Well, if you'd like, you can give us an email address as well. Yeah, my, my uh, email address is uh, ak at svtrobotics.com. And for those of you who would like a little more phonetics with it, it's Sam Victor Tango, svtrobotics.com. Uh, AK, I appreciate you being with us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the kind of solution that I think manufacturing has been looking for because that decision to put in technology that you might be locked into for half a decade or more when new things are always coming down the pike. So it's either 
wait and wait and wait or pull the trigger and get locked in, you, you present an interesting alternative. Thanks for sharing it with us. Happy to do it. We have a motto at SVT Robotics um, that says, uh, automation at the speed of need. As fast as you need it, it should be <laughs> able to great. be deployed. That's, That's great. great. All right. Well, again, thanks for joining us. And as new things come up, because this this sounds like an exciting area, um, I'd like you to reach back to us, uh, and I'd also like you to consider perhaps writing an article on automation at the speed of need for our monthly publication called Manufacturing Outlook Easy, uh, and we'd be glad to publish it there. Would Would be honored and privileged to do so. Great, great. Keep in touch with me, uh, and we'll do that. A.K., thanks for joining us. Thanks A.K., a lot. thank you. Thanks. And we've been speaking with A.K. Schultz, who is the CEO and co-founder of SVT Robotics. Again, that's svtrobotics.com, where you can find out more information on cool pieces of software that allows you to interface uh, different pieces of equipment without having to be married to them. Uh, we encourage you to go to svtrobotics.com and also to Manufacturing Talk Radio at, at mfgtalkradio.com, where we are going to post this show along with any other information that uh, AK shares with us so that you've got a more uh, rounded view of what they do. Uh, and while you're surfing the web, uh, check out um, JMC Media. Sorry. Uh, that's... Become. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> .com. and that's where we have all of our podcast links, so we encourage people to come and visit us so you can see links to this show as well as links to the WAM podcast, which is in Women in Manufacturing and Empowering Women in Manufacturing and Business. Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, who's an economist who talks about the importance of manufacturing as it relates to the economy, big connection and the big driver there. Where's Willie? William Miller traveling the country and talking to us from uh, the production floors. Full-time with Amy Nicholas, who speaks on the delicate work-life balance and Hazard Girls, women in non-traditional fields, all at jacketmediaco.com. And thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>